Today in the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to look at the Iskandar Explorer's Journal by M.T. Black. I'm going to look at the Blood and Doom Kickstarter. I'm going to talk about having released three of my earliest books, the Lazy Dungeon Master Dungeon Master Tips and Running Epic Tier Games in the Creative Commons. And we're going to talk about what compatibility with 5e means, both across systems, but also why I am not worried about the compatibility of one D&D or the next iteration of D&D and uh, our current version of DD. We're going to talk about what compatibility means when it comes to 5e. And we're going to dig into the April 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive material. I'm going to show off one of the things they get, just one of the many things they get. They get a dedicated Discord channel. They get the monthly Q&A. They get access to all kinds of different material that I that I put out there, including a bunch of exclusive adventures, such as Ragnum Rattus, The Rats in the Cellar. This is a very quick first-level adventure. It's actually a really fun adventure. It can go from two characters to, to five characters, from first to fifth-level level in your fifth edition fantasy RPG. And I actually wrote this as kind of a dare because a lot of people are like, why would you ever write an adventure about rats? Rats are so boring. And I was like, rats are not boring. And I'm going to show you by writing an adventure called Regnum Rattus, the rats in the cellar. And I'm going to base it on like ideas from Stephen King's graveyard shift in which a bunch of people go down and, and, and get eaten by rats. It's really cool. And so it's a 10 page adventure. It has a dead, an actual map that I commissioned for, for the work from Daniel Walthall. It's got just a lot of really fun stuff in it and it's built. It's got a, like how to handle your ses- your session zero, how you're connected to the, to the characters and you can sort of travel down in this vertical dungeon, hunting down rat things and and leveling up and so it's really designed to be a fun and quick way for characters to get from like first to fifth level exploring a bunch of sub basements beneath this old inn and you can see there's like a cellar and then there's sub cellars and there's creepy altars and there's like wells it's really a fun a fun adventure a fun way to go a bunch of different encounters a bunch of different things that you can get involved in there's like a were rat kid that you can help save all different things fun but it's also written very very in in very little text, very quick read, very easy to go. It's got random random encounters. It's got random locations you might run into, all different kinds of things. This is just one of many different adventures that you can get by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. So for patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. And if you'd like to join, you can find a link to become a patron down in the show notes below. M.T. Black is an incredible and prolific author of RPG and 5th edition based material and has been working on a world called Iskandar. If you haven't seen it, Iskandar is a world that MT Black is putting together. He has a city source book you can pick up on DriveThruRPG. Fantastic resource. Really good. I use this many times when people talk about building campaign settings or building worlds as a product. I point them to Iskandar and say look at what he did with it. Really fantastic, fantastic approach and the way he's expanding it. He is now doing the Iskandar Explorer's Journal. This is actually a bit like Dragon Magazine. It's sort of his own little zine. And I don't I don't use the word little in a pejorative. 38-page PDF, and he's giving it away for free on DriveThruRPG. You can actually go to DriveThruRPG and pick it up for free. And it has like a little bit of a gazetteer for an area of the world. It has new player options. It talks about a particular province. All different kinds of things that, that they've got in here. And it's really like his own little journal i keep saying little like it's bad but i i mean that in a good way like it's a focused product it's got neat stuff 
And I hope he keeps it up. I hope that we see more of these things. And obviously, like you're getting, you know, the, the, you're getting an infinite value considering the price. Really, really good stuff. And I just, I, I love to see products like this. I'm inspired by products like this. A lot of what MT Black has been doing with Iskandar inspired my own work with like the City of Arches and other other things that I've been creating. The same kind of like the Regnum Radis things. This idea of like short, quick products that you can pick up that are low cost that you can drop into your game. Really, really cool stuff. So check out the Iskandar Explorer's Journal by MT Black available on the Drive Through RPG. There is a link down in the show notes below really fantastic really fantastic product so i've seen the blood and doom kickstarter kicking around my kicking around my circles for a while now and i haven't talked about it. they got 14 days to go already already passed their their pledge goal and what i first saw was on drive through rpg i saw that they were the, the products were trending and i went and i picked them because i think they were i think they're free and they're huge. And, and what grabbed me about it immediately is how awesome the art is. The art for this book is phenomenal. I'm going to show off this, the, samples that they, the samples that they put out. It is an Italian RPG. It is not a 5e game. And that's probably the one thing that kind of set me back on it is I'm really kind of a 5e DM. I really enjoy 5e. I love running it. Whatever variants of 5e, whether it's Level Up 5e or Tales of the Valiant or, or Vanilla 2014 5e, I love the, the 5e system. So when I see something like this, a lot of times I'm like, I kind of wish it was available for 5e because I really don't want to learn a new system. Now, obviously, I love 13th Age. I love Shadow of the Demon Lord. I'm really looking forward to Shadow of the Weird Wizard and the new version of 13th Age. I'm probably, because I'm kind of saturated with systems. I don't know that I need more systems, but I don't hold it back. I don't, I don't want to say like they shouldn't, they shouldn't do it. And, but I typically focus on 5e, recommending 5e based stuff for Kickstarters. But I am recommending this one because I think it's very inspirational for your 5e games, even if you don't necessarily want to run the system that they have. It is massive. So I have not looked at the rule system itself. I haven't decided like, is this a rule system? I like, I think it's a D100 based rule system. It's definitely a fantasy RPG. It looks like a dark fantasy RPG. You know, it, it has a whole like list. D, it's a D10 based system that that they work on. And but it's also like a class and archetype based system and origin. So it has a lot of the stuff that I would expect, which is why I kind of go like, I kind of, you know, just for me, I kind of wish it was 5e based, but that's okay. Not everybody needs to follow what I want to do. And certainly I, I, I think it's very cool for people to go explore their own systems. So it is made by Dice Tale Games. I believe they're a group of Italian publishers. And yeah, so so the one thing, the, the thing that grabbed me about it, where I was like, whoa, is I was like, yeah, where's your sample? You know, I'm always looking for a sample. And I like, you know me, I like the one click sample where you can just go get it. And I'm like, can I just go get it? This primer bundle. Let me go see. I'm like, ah, oh, it makes you go to DriveThruRPG. However, DriveThruRPG, that's not bad. I already have an account in DriveThruRPG. You're not going to annoy me too much if you make me go to DriveThruRPG. And then I saw the size of these things. These are the samples, right? So this is the Blood and Doom sample rulebook. 304 pages. The sample is 300 and how big is the normal book going to be? But look at that art. Like that cover is bananas. Like that is a really, really cool, like Conan-esque cover. That really grabs me. And if you want to learn more about the system, if you want to dig, look at that, right? Holy cow. So the art alone, for again, for the sample, 
the art is worth it just to flip through and get inspired by art. That's one of the things that we can do with RPG products of all different sorts. Just be inspired. Look at the artwork. You can just grab screenshots and send it to your players too while you're playing your game. But you can also just get ideas from the art. And I remember when I was a kid, I would look at like the front cover of Rifts, like RPG Rifts, which I've never played and know any, don't know anything about. But I'd look at the front cover and just the cover was inspiring. It's like cybernetic demons was inspiring. And it gave me, it made, it fired up neurons in my head that I really liked. So the whole, the, the, the core rule book is 300 pages, tells you all about how to play the game, walks through the different archetypes of the, your, your, your classes and subclasses, stuff like that. Again, really great art, you know, talks about, talks about how to play really really neat stuff and then then you get in and that's only one of three books that they put out as samples the other one is a 150 page blood and doom guide to ether now this is where i think this is I, I believe sort of the world that it's set in and this is something where if you like the idea of this world enough you could easily move it to your 5e game if you wanted to or again try out their system like give it a give it a shot if, you're, if your players are on board and you're on board give it a shot this is always a good idea about like where does this thing come from? And it's like, what inspiration, what inspired the work? And I think that that's a really cool thing to do. Like what, what ideas, what bits of fiction inspired? And as soon as you see stuff like, oh, Hellraiser, Conan the Barbarian, you know, Mountains of Madness, The Thing, The Fly, you're like, oh, I love all this stuff. Children of the Corn, The Omen. Like as soon as you read this, I feel like, oh, okay. A lot of different things influence this book. And those are all things that I really think are really cool. A lot of, lot of Lovecraft in here, a lot of Robert Howard in here, you know, Temple of Doom. It's funny, it's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Beastmaster, my wife will be happy. She loves Beastmaster. So lots of different things in here. So so this is one where like, even though it's designed for another world, there's no reason you can't take this and harvest it and use it for your own settings or steal ideas from it. And one thing I would implore creators to do is build your stuff to be stolen. Build it so that people can grab pieces of it and run with it. That's something, you know, Wolfgang Bauer, when I was talking to him about Midgard, that he said that he was really thinking about is how do you grab pieces of it and drop it into other worlds? So I really like that. And then there's a third book, in case two books aren't enough, 108 page Blood and Doom, Doomsayers Codex, The 12 Pillars of Doom. And guess what this is? 108 page gazetteer of 12 different cults. And who doesn't love cults? All these different cults that you've got in here, the Shaddai, the Yukashan, right? Neat, neat, like, again, it has sort of that inspiration and a whole bunch of ideas of the, the cults that operate. Look at this, look at this bananas art, right? The art is so, oh, look at that. So neat. So really, really cool looking, you know, just, I'm, I'm just amazed at, at the art and everything else that they've got in here. Fantastic stuff. So at the very least, go check out their the free samples that they've got on this Kickstarter. And then if you want it, and I'm going to pick, I haven't, I haven't backed it yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to back it right now. There. I put my money where mouth is. I backed it. I backed it. Yay. So, you know, I just, just again, like letting RPGs inspire us, even if we don't really have a, even if we don't really have a plan to run it, we can be inspired by this stuff. We can maybe we read through the rules and we like ideas from the rule set in there. So take a look, the Blood and Doom Kickstarter. You can find a link down in the show notes below. One of the things I did this past weekend, I actually did this yesterday. I have I have I'm I've published 10 D&D books at this point. 
And I've been publishing them since about 2010. And I had gone back to a couple of my older books, Dungeon Master Tiffs, which was the first book I wrote, very short, staple-bound chat book style thing, and Running Epic Tier Games, also another very short book. And I released all of the text for those under a Creative Commons license. And yesterday I said, you know what? I think it's time that I did the same thing for the original Lazy Dungeon Master book, the one I wrote in 2014. So all three books have now been released in a Creative Commons license. And you can get all of them. You can find a link to all of them down in the show notes below. You can find them all linked off of the Sly Flourish homepage. You go to the homepage, you go down to Sly Flourish's books. There's an older books and it says the following books are primarily focused on older editions of D&D and are largely outdated by the books above, but you can enjoy them for free under a Creative Commons license. And that includes the Lazy Dungeon Master. So you click on this and you have a Creative Commons version of the Lazy Dungeon Master. This means that you can download it. You can share it with your friends. You can go get it printed at a local printer if you want to. You can do a lot of different things with it. You can make derivative works. The only restrictions because it's the whole book is that it is by attribution. You have to attribute it back to me. It's non-commercial. So the works that you create from it, you cannot sell. And as a share-alike license, meaning anything you create from this has to also be shared under the same license. I did this because when I look at an entire book that I write, when I look at the text, a lot of it, I feel like it, the, the, it's not the mechanics that are inside the book that are really important. It's the ideas that are in the book and, and the way they're articulated. And I think like if you were going to make a new commercial work, you should probably go make your own thing based on this. That isn't, I'm going to talk about some other stuff that I do want to release into a much less restrictive Creative Commons license. I'll talk about that in a minute. But basically all of them, all of these are available. The whole text of the books are available. And you can find a big table, linked table of contents here with everything in it. This is the original Lazy Dungeon Master, not to be confused with Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which I wrote six years later. I think 2018, I wrote Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. So this is the original book that, that, that came from that. So there's three of these books, Dungeon Master Tips, which I wrote back in 2010, the earliest days of fourth edition. Running epic tier games, I wrote a year later, specifically about running high tier high tier games and the lazy the lazy dungeon master the first of the lazy dungeon master first time i articulated the stuff that is now formed into all of the things that i do with return of the lazy dungeon master and everything else so they're really kind of fun artifacts to look at where this kind of stuff this kind of stuff came from one of the questions that so again you can find them all on the home page of sly flourish you can link to them you can share them you can send the links to your friends they are they are, they are openly available for non-commercial sharing for, for everything else. And the reason I want to do that is like to make sure they, they last and that they, they stay out there and that people, people can download them and use them and that you don't have to worry about if you want to translate them to another language, you now can do so. You just can't sell the results of it. So all of these are available. And one of the questions I got was like, you know, what is, what's changed since, since you originally wrote it? And if we go back to like Dungeon Master Tips, so one thing that's important to remember, certainly for Dungeon Master Tips and for running Epic Tier Games is they were written in the heart of fourth edition. There was no concept of fifth edition. There was no concept of D&D Next at the time. They, I, I did not write them around the ideas that are in third edition or below. It was all written specifically for fourth edition. So I would say in the same way that my some of my current books, Return is not so much like that. Return is actually pretty agnostic, but like the, the companion and the workbook, are really for 5th edition, the same way that these are for 4th for edition, which is definitely going to limit their utility. So, but a lot, of the, the, a lot of the ideas in here are still, they still work. They're still sound. Like, as an advice book, the advice is still pretty sound. It's just sometimes the specifics are not there. The art, by the way, that's all in this book was done by Jared Von Hinman, who did all of the art for both Dungeon Master Tips and for and for running Epic Tier Games. It's fantastic art that really captured a lot of like the, the, the style and thoughts that I had. So uh, 
a lot of the advice that you'll see sort of in like how to use the book again you've, you've seen that before focusing on the next adventure is something i pitched today the campaign elevator pitch you can see where some of the ideas for things that i've now more articulated have come from in these books the adventure checklist and what's interesting here is like this is a big checklist this is definitely not lazy DM style. Outlining the adventure, building combat encounters, preparing NPCs, preparing your miniatures, because fourth edition was all about tabletop minis. There also really wasn't online play, so it was nothing about like setting up your VTT or anything like that. Planning your skill challenges, back when I thought skill challenges are something worth planning. I don't anymore. So like that's an example where I don't, I don't agree with it. Writing flavor text, I wouldn't do that these days. Preparing quest cards, not a bad idea. Calculating looting experience, well, we talk about loot. Designing puzzles, eh. Preparing music, yeah. Props and handouts, yeah. Preparing table materials, sure. Like you can see where like half of the stuff that's in here has made its way to like into the eight steps of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. And about a bunch of these things I'm like, ah, I don't bother doing it anymore. And I talk about examples on how to do all of these things. But certainly like if we look at this list, outlining, sure. Combat encounters, kind of. I, I do the select monsters. NPCs, yes. Miniatures, only if you're going to use them. Uh, planning skill challenges, no. Writing flavor text, no. Preparing quest cards, eh, probably not. Calculate loot and experience, loot, yes. Experience, no, because I use milestone. Designing puzzles, no. Preparing music, that's a nice thing to do, but you certainly don't have to. Developing props and handouts, that's a nice thing, but you don't have to. Preparing table materials, sure. So a lot of interesting things that you can that you can get from here. And maybe you read this like, oh yeah, no, this resonates with some people. It's like, it resonates better. How to maintain creativity. I talk about habits and building structures. You know, a lot of it I look back and I'm like, man, I was arrogant. You know, <laughs> but, you know, I learned through writing. So telling organic stories. I think this is definitely where, you know, the ideas that, that have grown, that idea that like you don't build a story. You build the story from the actions of your players. I've got in here off camera stories, creating awesome villains. I think a lot of this still stands. A lot of these ideas. What are the story pitfalls to avoid? I now have kind of new pitfalls that I that I worry about that are kind of different than there. Getting really fun art. Designing fun encounters. Very begin fifth edi fourth edition was very heavy on the encounter is sort of the anchor of your game. So what do you do? You map monsters, terrain effects, traps and hazards, environmental powers. A lot of the stuff that's in here has made its way into Forge of Foes. So the book that I'm working on now with Scott Scott Fitzgerald Gray and Teo Sabadia, I actually have a chapter that I wrote that is based on this stuff where I brought it forward to fifth edition. So yeah, some of this stuff is still in there. How do, when you have a big set piece encounter, what are all the things you can bring there? Balancing challenge and fun, definitely something I've talked about. Building exciting battle maps, again, like it was such a focus on the battle map that it was really interesting. Making environments enjoyable, so much on combat, right? You can see how much attention in this book is focused on combat. How to use minions effectively. Remember, minions in fourth edition had a specific nomenclature. And I don't, and a lot of this was like how to fix minions because the style of minion didn't work exactly like we wanted. They were a little too easy to kill. I love this. The the black vampiric dragon who breathes out spiders was was wicked fun. I ran. I remember running that creature. How to you know deal with solo creatures? Some of this you could probably abstract and bring over to legendary creatures, but a lot of this is focused on the mechanics of fourth edition, so probably not so good. Designing for fast combat, not not bad. The add and out is something that definitely you can do, but fourth edition it was such an issue that that I really a lot of this book was written around how to do that. Again, a lot of these things are focused to fourth edition. Encounter pitfalls, things that you can do, bad combination of effect, props and handouts, definitely add puzzles. You know, not so much anymore. Keep your players' attention. Run two at a time. I would do this like it would get so slow. I'd have two players both resolve their actions at the same time just so we could move quick, quick, quickly, right? The buddy system, the rules layer, managing time. It was such an issue back then. So a lot of this is like, oh, God, run exciting skill challenges. What it, What's funny about this is 
a lot of what like again it was like how to fix skill challenges and now it's like just don't do them instead just let this situation evolve and use ability checks get your players to role play start with background stories find their deepest secret use the character's name cheap table tools bottle rings pipe cleaners index cards fourth edition was so fun so that is you know that that's kind of a fun like it's fun to read but I, the, the one thing i worry about it because you know i put this up on reddit the, the post on reddit got a lot of attention and i'm hoping that like the people that read this recognize i have new stuff that you probably want to read that's more up to date than this like i don't i don't follow all of this stuff it'd be fun to look through lazy dungeon master though let's take a look through the lazy dungeon master and see like how things have changed since i wrote this so again this is now 11 years old 11 years i, I wrote this this was right when DD next was coming out so we knew that there was going to be a new version and this book is definitely more agnostic than dm tips is this one this one is something that you could still grab onto however i really feel like the six years between this and return i learned a lot more and that's what's in return and that's why i wrote a sequel that's right i wrote a new that's why i wrote a new book and you, you can definitely tell so again high level philosophy i think still sound a lot of it i don't i don't think i i disagree with this whole idea of saving your time to prepare a game and showing you how to prepare less can actually help you build a new game this is something that while i was writing this book i discovered in interviews and in conversations and in surveys and stuff which is not only that you there are things that you could do to speed up your prep for your game but in many cases it makes your game better and that was a concept that i grabbed onto and i jumped in return really doubled down on that you know like of you know here's mike merles's quote of all the prep i do maybe 10 percent actually comes into play so the lots of different so that's where i was like quoting lots of people that have, have done this kind of thing prepare only what benefits your game that's still the survey that's used in return what do you stop doing what are the things you no longer need to do in order to make sure that your game is going you know and it talks about like i get it like you know i like i like what's game it turns out stephen pressfield's a bit of a dick so i'm kind of sad to have a whole reference to his stuff in here the idea is good he's a he's a jerk but yeah, you know, the whole idea of like the things that are getting in your way, the things that, that you kind of bring upon yourself that get in the way of you being able to prep your game. Being lazy is hard, right? Like it's actually hard to kind of do this stuff. That's definitely true. So a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff is still sound. It's, it's still good advice. And remember, lazy, original Lazy Dungeon Master, far, far shorter book than, than Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master as well. This is where I was definitely over-optimistic. Five-minute adventure preparation? I mean, maybe, but holy cow, you know, it takes 30. You really, you know, 30 minutes is not an unreasonable amount of time. And that idea of like, can you do five-minute prep? I mean, you you can prep in what little time you have, but where's the, where's the cutoff line of good of good prep? That idea of five, that's like five-minute abs, right? <laughs> like, you know, the reality is you're not going to, you know, it's not going to be great doing five-minute prep. So that was definitely over-optimistic. And certainly in return, I do not make any claims about this. Like maybe 15 or 30 minute prep, but like what are the things? But now you can look at like what the steps are and you can see how they evolved in the eight steps from like three. Where does your adventure begin? What three areas might your adventure lead? And what are your three notable NPCs? You know, we need to expand upon that. And that's when I really sat down with return. And I'm like, I just don't think a lot of this stuff is possible. And I don't prep that way. And then I have these other things, secrets and clues and prepping your monsters and all that. So an interesting idea, but I don't think, I don't think it really works nearly as well this whole beginning your adventure certainly this all went right into the strong start the idea of the elevator pitch that you give that's something that's gone forward the idea of the three paths is sort of like the three hex thing i've written about this in other places like what are the three areas that the characters might go what option what three options are in front of them at any given time that is definitely something that has evolved i don't know that there's a specific stuff in return for that 
I think I do talk about like the, you know, the, when you're outlining your scenes that the scenes might be sequential or they might be in parallel and have options gets into that, that a little bit character driven stories, you know, definitely, you know, definitely they're focused on three important ally NPCs. Who are the allies that are there? That's not, not bad advice. I don't exactly follow it, you know, follow it to the letter improvising secondary NPCs. So know who your main NPCs are and then improvise your secondary NPCs. Not bad. Tying NPCs to the story. We do a lot of that. Session zero, we do that. And then the whole idea of focusing on your characters in step step one, that definitely fits. Keeping the end in sight. Do you know where it's going to go? Don't sell an ending you can't deliver. I talk about this, that like many times when you watch shows where they're really exciting and interesting and then the ending sucks. I'm not going to name any names, but we all know we all know who those are. Ask your players what they want. Like, what are they looking forward to? The advantage of mini campaign you can focus in. World building through relationships. I like, I really got into fiasco, fiasco style relationships. It's something that I've, that I've definitely looked at. And this idea that you can sort of connect all the characters together by their connection between the two of them is a really neat one. I, I spent a fair bit of time in this. I think I have, the workbook has stuff like this. I think I talk about it in, in return. Building from frameworks. I don't remember all this. The story seed frameworks. Yeah. So how do you build, you know, how do you build your whole adventures from these ideas? Like what's a story seed from a movie that you like? I talk a lot about this, right? I've, I've, I've discussed. And, and obviously if you look at the companion, the companion actually has models that are built around this character frameworks, you know, who are the characters and what kind of fun connection can we pull them to? Mike Ermintrout is the grizzled war vet. Ermintrout from Breaking Bad. I was big into Breaking Bad back then. Colliding worlds, mashing stuff up. New world and a three by five card. 10 world mashups. This is kind of fun. Six traits about your game world. You can see where this got into stuff that I did for a, for, for a spiral campaign development. Definitely came, came from these ideas. The tools. What are the physical tools we use? I love like thinking about physical tools. Three by five note card, dry erase poster maps. Again, there's a whole chapter in return that kind of talks about this. Cheat sheets, random names. Reskinning. I've been talking about reskinning ever since. So you can see some ideas that definitely got there. Encounter design. I still had more of a focus on sort of combat encounters as a thing. The scenario, battle space, combatants, and terrain effects. You know, what it was the reason about encounter again, still kind of in that fourth edition mindset that the encounter is sort of the anchor of the of the, the session. Treasure and experience, effort-based experience rewards. This is definitely a fourth edition sort of idea. Now we just call it milestone. And I I recommend milestone is much lazier, much lazier, much easier. How to use published material. Again, you should always f feel prepared to throw throw it out and make it your own. What are the things you can delegate to other players has made its way into tips and tricks in return to the most distracted. That really works. So a lot of this stuff is pretty good. Improving improvisation is something I talked about a lot. You know, don't worry too much about it. Act as if you know what you're doing. Use yes and. Putting yourself in the character. Go with the humor. Follow the masters. I really like, this is back when Chris Perkins was doing the Penny Arcade games. Like, you know, we've seen how that has gone. Immerse yourself in fiction. Find good fiction. I think I have a list of fiction in here. And then we have like these appendices. And the appendices have lots of different like stuff in here that actually ended up making its way into the Lazy DM workbook and the Lazy DM's companion. So there's lots of ideas. And then the survey where I have all of the results of the surveys and questionnaires that I have. So a big long book. So fun, a fun read. And you can see where a lot of the stuff that I wrote back in 2012 has made its way into the 2018 return. And I think the 2018 return, I, and it's now been five years since I wrote that. 
And I really feel like that still holds up very well. I don't, I, I look back, I reference it all the time. I've got my copies here and I'm always pulling it off and looking at stuff that I wrote about return. So I definitely think that that, that, that works well. So all of those, if, you, if you're interested in this stuff, I still feel like a lot of it is valuable and useful. Or I wouldn't bother to put it out. And you can find all of that on the Sly Flourish homepage under older books. They're all released under Creative Commons license. You can share them with your friends. You can read them for free. You can download them and save them to your own hard drive. You can go whatever you, you, know, whatever you want to do with them as long as it's commercial, non-commercial, and as long as you are sharing your results alike and as long as you're referencing back to me, you can do. So this is just a star for me. This is, this is when, when Scott and Teos and I were talking about releasing stuff from Forge of Foes under a Creative Commons license, that got me thinking more about it. And this is just the beginning. I also started yesterday working on my own system reference document for many of the principles and many of the tools and many of the things that I've included in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, and the Lazy DMs Companion. There are ideas from there that I really want to share with the world. I really want to make available. And they are not going to be restricted to non-commercial share alike licenses they will be under a creative commons attribution only license which means you can use them in commercial work you can make derivative works and you don't have to share it under the same license i want to really release that stuff so that people can use it wherever they want to whether it's digital tools or whether it's their own adventures i get a lot of questions from people like can we use the eight steps in your adventure and i want to say yes here are the eight steps you can build off of those yourselves and the, 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 the eight steps now belong to all of us they're not just mine so i'm working on that document i want to make sure that I'm releasing the stuff that I want to release and that I'm not releasing the stuff I don't want to release. So I need to be very careful with it because once it's out there, you can't ever take it back. I don't even know what I'm going to call it yet. I'm not even sure exactly what I'm going to call it. Right now, I'm leaning towards the lazy, either lazy RPG prep, the lazy RPG prep system reference document, something like that. I don't know. Still playing with it. I got people I need to talk to and the advice I want to get. But that is going to be a very similar document. It's going to be an HTML, so you can use it for all kinds of things. I think that HTML is a good format to release this stuff in. If you don't think HTML works as a good format, argue for your favorite format below. My reason for releasing the stuff in HTML is you can convert it to just about anything else. You can make markdown out of it. You can process it with code and turn it into digital stuff. You can easily copy and paste from it without worrying about weird formatting issues. There's lots of different things you can do with HTML. It's a format that's been around for like at least in use heavily for 30 years. It's HTML has been around for a long time. It will probably be around a long time. So I think that HTML is the right format for me to release this stuff. If you disagree, send me a comment and let me know why and let me know what's better it's gonna be hard to i i'm i am willing to be convinced but it's really good the other one is it's, it works well on mobile you can read it directly like you can open it in any browser on any device and read it and it just reads and you can process it with machines that seems like a hard thing to beat you can't do that with pdfs like pdf machines can't read pdfs either, easily stuff like that so you know latex i see dr fugue says use latex right except try rendering latex in a browser or moving into a mobile device, or putting it on a Kindle, or sticking it on, you know, doing read aloud text. LaTeX has to be converted to other stuff. Markdown, same problem, right? You have to then convert it to something else. I don't want to have 10 versions. So to me, I bet you there's Markdown. I bet you you can take HTML to LaTeX easier than the other way around. Maybe not. Maybe that's not true. So I'm. that's something I'm going to work on. I don't know when that's going to be released. Probably patrons will see this thing first. I think what I'm going to do is start working on the system reference document without a Creative Commons license on it. Work on it for a while. Have people take a look at it. Have people kind of talk about it. And then when I'm ready, when I feel safe about putting it out there for everything, then I will slap a Creative Commons license on it and suddenly it will be available to everybody to use. So that's that's my intent. But I want to be careful with it because it's like, it's my life's work, right? It's I've been working on this for 15 years and, and I want to make sure that I 
I, I really want to make sure that that everything works 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 out there. So. So we'll see. So exciting stuff. I'm really, I'm, I'm excited for it. If you have thoughts about the kinds of things you would like to see in a, whatever we're going to call it, lazy GM, lazy RPG system reference document, let me know. Let me know what you want. Let me know what you would do with it if it was released under this, under this license. I'd be very, very curious to, very curious to hear. So we had the D&D Summit two weeks ago, I think it was kind of. Yeah, I don't remember. I think it was like two weeks ago. No, two weeks. It'll be two weeks ago from this past Monday, and it was been a quiet week ever since. And one of the things that came up because I, I did on the last show, I talked a lot about what I learned at the at the summit, the things that I thought were useful for other DMs at the summit, and I made a statement that people and I've gotten responses to this statement. My statement was that I felt pretty good about the direction that things are heading with the 2024 revisions of D and D, and I more so than almost anybody I know am optimistic about backward compatibility and I've heard a lot of people that are like you're in crack it's not like it's barely compatible with itself now and they're not wrong like, like there's definitely things like the print version of Spelljammer for example, the first edition that I have is not really backward compatible with other stuff because backgrounds have feats in that book and nobody, no other backgrounds have feats. So there's definitely like little issues like that. So when I think about what background compatibility means and when I think about how it's going to work and, and a lot of people are like, no, it's just not, it's just not going to work. And I think the reason why is that I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm kind of abstracting it. And other people are looking at the details. And when I think about backward compatibility and things that aren't backward compatible, an example is I can't use a fourth edition monster in my fifth edition game. They're just not even remotely the same. I can't use a third edition game stat block in my fourth edition game or my fifth edition game. There's clear differences. Like the whole game's engine is very different between those three systems. Now, some argue that adventures are still compatible across those three editions, and all you have to do is just change the monster stat blocks that you're using, and generally speaking, the rest of the stories can work, and that is one level of compatibility. So when we think about compatibility, you can sort of think about it in like different regions, levels, spheres, different things that make one game compatible with another. If you abstract it enough, you can take a basic D&D adventure from 1970 whatever and run it with 5th edition rules now many people have you can probably take if you're willing to basically reskin all of the mechanics any adventure or any storyline or any campaign or any world or even monster descriptions can be reused from one edition to another so we know that that means it's safe like that part of it, it can work. All of the books that we have, my Eberron book for fifth edition is probably still going to be good. I could run Fate using that system. I could run Numenera using that system. So a lot of the, as soon as you separate the mechanics from the fiction, and then the fiction can work on its own. So there's that level of compatibility. So, so we think about the next level up. And one, one area where I'm pretty confident it's still going to work is monsters, monster stat blocks. If you look at your Toma Heroes, your Toma Heroes 2, or sorry, if you look at your Toma Beasts 1, 2, and 3, your Creature Codex, and all of the monster books that you may have picked up for 5th edition, I expect that you can use any of those monster stat blocks using the 2024 5th edition rules. I haven't seen anything in the playtest that, that shows that you can't. I think the, all of those monsters will still work. Will they work well? 
is different. And that may not be a matter of compatibility, but just changes in design. And the example is you can use any of the monsters in the 2014 monster manual. But if you look at how monsters are designed in Monsters of the Multiverse, they're designed relatively differently. And the ones in Monsters of the Multiverse tend to run a little bit better. It's enough that like Cobalt Press decided to go back and redo the Tome of Beasts 1 using the new style that they've been using for like Tome of Beasts 3 because they've, they've learned new things about how to make monsters. But the Tome of Beasts 1 monsters are still compatible. You can still use them. And if you like a monster and you like the stats, you can still use it. So I don't think that, I think monsters are going to be pretty good. You may want to only use new monsters. And that's an area where compatibility, in my mind, is you, you don't get to argue it's not compatible. If your argument is the new stuff is better, so I only want to use that. That's a different problem, right? If compatibility means your, your books aren't obsolete and they're not obsolete, they're old and the design isn't as good. Maybe, probably, but that doesn't mean they don't work. So if they go back and they change how monsters are designed and they put out the new monster manual and you like the new monsters way better than the old ones and you find that you never go back to the old monster manual again, that doesn't mean it's not compatible. It's still compatible. So I think the monster design might be better and it might be something that you want to use. But I bet you if you have a monster that's in the old 2014 book that you really like and you want to use that one, you probably still can. So I bet you monsters are fine. Now, one of the things, if we look at like level up advanced 5e. So one thing to keep in mind is we're not just talking about the 2024 revision compatibility. We're also talking about Cubicle 7 C7020. We're talking about Tales of the Valiant by Cobalt Press. We're talking about Level Up Advanced 5e. And we're talking about, you know, any other variants of 5e. And we're talking about compatibility, not just with 2024 D&D, but also among themselves and among each other and what's compatible there. And I think all of these things still sit that if you pick up a monster from one third party product and I've done it, like I've pulled monsters from the monsters menagerie and run them from level up advanced 5e and run them in my 2014 DD game. And they're fine, right? They work great. They work better. I actually like, I prefer them. So it's not just about compatibility with 2024 DD. It's about compatibility with all of the variants of 5e. And I think that this sort of, you know, this sort of hierarchy of what are the things that are probably pretty easily converted or not even converted, but run. And then what is going to be some of the harder bits? And an example is I was reading up on the adventurer's guide for the level up advanced 5e. And one of the things it says in it, one of the things I've been doing is trying to bring more material into open 5e, the website that has open access, structured structured access to lots of different OGL material. And I was working to help bring backgrounds over from level up advanced 5e to put in there so that that one has more background because right now it doesn't have backgrounds. And I was reading about compatibility and they said like the expectation of compatibility that level up advanced 5e has is that you can build a character using the rules from level up advanced 5e and you can run it side by side with a character built with the 2014 version of D&D. That doesn't mean they have an expectation that the subclasses and the feats and the backgrounds of Level Up Advanced 5e can be dropped in on a 2020 on a 2014 character. They they didn't design it that way. And that the, the subclasses are designed for the classes that are in Level Up Advanced 5e. So you kind of need to know what type of compatibility a different system has. I don't know if that'll be the case with Tales of the Valiant, Cobalt Press's 5e variant. But we did hear what Wizard said, which is that they want subclasses from older books that they've published to be compatible with the classes that they're coming out with in the 2024 books. Which means not only will the subclasses be available that like if you liked 
you know, light cleric from 2014, you could use it. But that also means it's compatible with third party subclasses. So if they hang on to that design idea, it could be that the 2024 revisions of D&D are going to be more backward compatible than things like Level Up Advanced 5e is. I don't know about Tales of the Valiant. We haven't seen enough yet. So that's kind of interesting. So subclasses, subclasses are probably the hard part. Getting Knowing that subclasses can work cross-compatible with older and newer versions is a, is a trickier bit. Now, classes sitting side by side probably relatively compatible, but I expect you're not going to want to mix up things too much. Again, if you have a player who's playing a 2014 fighter sitting next to a player that's playing a 2024 fighter, they're going to be different, but they're probably still run side by side. Now, the 2014 fighter might be player might be sad about all the cool stuff that the 2024 guy, hey, how come you get all these crazy maneuvers with your weapons that I don't get? Well, go buy this old book. Wanting something from the new version and not having it is different than being compatible which is one of the things that I think like you not wanting to use the old stuff is not a lack of compatibility. It's a decision that you've decided to move to the newer version, just like you would have picked new rules from Tasha's that you like, and you go with Tasha's or you like the way level up advanced five E does stuff. So you go to level up advanced five E that to me doesn't, it doesn't count as not being backward compatible spells are another one. I think spells are actually so, so spells and magic items those are things that I think can be relatively compatible because we know that some spells are overpowered. We know some spells are underpowered. And if you look at books like Deep Magic by Cobalt Press, they're sort of all over the place. Some spells are really powerful. Some spells are really not. Some spells are written really weirdly, but they're still generally compatible. And if you want to do things like offer up a spell on a scroll that a character can learn, you can just do that. And I bet you can do that with spells across the board. You can do that with third-party spells. You can do that with books like, like Deep Magic from other publishers, from, from other 5e publishers. And you could probably take versions of spells from 2014 and versions of spells from 2024 and spells that have been published in all of the books in between and decide whether they're good. Some of them are going to be pretty goofy. Again, like if you're one of the groups that allows for Silvery Bar, you know, there you go. But you might say like, yeah, we're going to limit which spells or the DM gets to pick, you know, other than the spells in the core book, the DM has approval on which spells make their way in. I, I had a general standing rule because there was like no way I could keep track of all of the new Cobalt Press spells that we were going to have in our games. I said, you know, the, the standing rule I had is every so often we might run into something that's just breaking the game. And I hope we can work as adults to figure that out. And they're like, sure, right? So nobody wants the game to get busted because they brought in a particular spell. So I think in some cases you have to treat them like a house rule. And you say like, do I really want every spell in there? But I think spells by and large will be compatible. Same with magic items. I don't think we're going to see a, a, a thing where a magic item from a previous fifth edition publisher can't be used with the 2024 books or that you can't use one magic item in a different group. I think magic items are going to be pretty cross compatible and forward compatible and backward compatible among all of the 5e variants. Variants. I would expect you're not going to see, you might not want to, or you might have magic items that you look at and they, they don't really work, but I don't think the systems are going to change so much that you can't use magic items. So I think magic items are, are pretty solid. So what other, what other bits of mechanics are there in games? So there's a question of like, will they change the difficulty ladder? And I don't think they will. So, so a, a DC 12 will still be a DC 12, regardless of what system you're playing. Again, like every so often you run into things with like level up advanced 5e where it has skills that don't exist in other variants. And I think we might see some stuff like that with other publishers. I bet you Wizards is going to be more interested in staying base compatible with like their existing skill lists. I don't think they're going to change the skill lists. I don't think they're going to change the DC ladder and say suddenly hard is now normal and normal is now easy. I don't think they're going to change what like the DC. Are you going to see... 
Are you going to see power creep? Absolutely. We've already seen power creep. And as soon as you start getting into ones where they have feats at first level, you're going to see power creep. What's interesting is like now we're going to have it where like level up advanced 5e doesn't give you a feat at first level, but Tales of the Valiant and 2024 D&D do give you feats at first level. So there might be a power difference between different versions of D&D. It's probably not huge. And it's also probably fixable by saying, we'll just let the other ones have a feat at first level too. I think some of the compatibility guidelines that they're going to include in the core books for 2024 could be used when you're also working with a, another publisher's version of fifth edition as well. So I think that that will all stay, that stay sound. So... This is why I'm optimistic. When I look at this list, when I think about the things that exist in books that we've purchased and products that we've purchased, both from Wizards of the Coast and other fifth edition publishers, and we think about what could break if they go forward in a different way. They can't really break fiction because we can always use fiction. We can always reskin. They're probably not going to break monsters. We may get to a situation where we only want to use new monsters, but now I'm in a situation where I almost only want to use Forge of Foes monsters because I like it so much. So deciding that you don't want to use old monsters isn't the same as breaking compatibility. Spells will probably be compatible. Obviously, they'll be... And like, again, the Cobalt Press, they're redoing the Deep Magic 1 spell. So you... You know, they have Deep Magic 1 and 2. They're going to have two huge books of spells that are coming out. Massive amounts of spells. But those will probably be compatible with both 2024 D&D and they're making it compatible with Tales of the Valiant. So I think we're going to see a lot of cross-compatibility. Magic items, I don't think we're going to see major changes in the mechanics of magic items that they won't work. Classes, I think they're, you're, you're definitely... I think the classes can work side by side. But I don't think you're going to get a lot of cross-class stuff. So an example is like the, the, the class options that are available in Tasha's are probably not options that you would want to tack onto your Tales of the Valiant fighter. In that sort of vernacular, I don't think they'll be compatible. But if you have a book that has a class in it anyway and you stick to what's in that book, you're probably fine. It's really about these other areas where, where you want to go. I guess feats are another one, but feats... I don't think feet, feats are an area that's probably not going to be very compatible, right? And that's because the feats are almost always going to be built around the expectations that are in that version's books. So you're probably not going to want to take feats from level up advanced 5e and stick them onto your Tales of the Valiant character. But again, if you have the class, you're probably going to also have feats there already. So feats are probably an area where I think, I think you're going to have some difficulties with compatibility. Sub, that might be the hardest one, actually. Subclasses, I think, are going to be pretty compatible. Probably compatible with 2024 D&D, but I don't know about other books. We'll have to see. Like, what, can, you, can you take a subclass from the Tales of the Valiant and use it in your 2024 D&D? That I'm not sure. I think that's going to be tricky. So, so when I'm what I'm trying to do here is, is, is go a level deeper than just talking about general compatibility and think about specific compatibility and think about the things you really want to be compatible or not. Adventures, probably very compatible. Monster books, probably very compatible. Spell books and, and magic item books, probably very compatible. And, on, and all of those in any other books, monsters, spells, magic items that you find in other third-party books, those are probably all fine. Subclasses, I think are probably going to be pretty good with 2024 D&D. We know they're good with 2014 D&D. We'll have to see. Like, I don't think they really work with level up advanced 5e. I don't think if you switch to level up advanced 5e, I don't know that you could grab a subclass from another from another third party book, another fifth edition book you know, and use them. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't, I think subclasses are probably the area. That's one where I'm not really sure. 
right? And a lot of people love designing subclasses. I, I luckily, lucky me, I never designed a subclass, so I don't really care. Classes are probably indep- are, are probably specific, and feats are probably specific to each version, right? And probably not very cross compatible. So, but in general, I think like you, if you if you look at the books that you have sitting on your shelves and wonder, can I still use this book with a 2024 version of D and D, or Tales of the Valiant, or Level Up Advanced 5e, or Cubicle Seven C seventy twenty? The answer probably mostly, right? Like I've got Tolis by Monty Cook Games. I bet you I can run that. At worst, I might say you, you can't use the subclasses, but I don't know how many people ever use third-party or non-Wazi, non-Wizards of the Coast developed subclasses anyway. I think, I think subclasses were developed a lot and used very infrequently. I bet you that that's the case. I bet you if you looked at how often people use subclasses, you know, that that could be a thing. But it, and it's unfortunate too because subclasses are a great way to add specific flavor to a game. I've seen it in my Cobalt Press games. It's worked really, really well. So so that's kind of interesting. Anyway, that's just my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving general thoughts about what I think 5e compatibility means. And I'm curious on your take. Are there areas where you're worried about it? Are there areas where you're sure that it's not going to work? What are you, when you want, when you think about backward compatibility, when you think about the new version of D&D, 2024 D&D being backward compatible, when you look at Tales of the Valiant and C7020 and Level, Level Up Advanced 5e, and these, like, now we have sort of five major versions of fifth edition out there. What are the things you're worried about getting broken? And... And what are the things that you're pretty confident are still going to work just fine? I'd love to hear about it. Let me know. Put comments down. Send me an email or put comments. Let me know. Talk about it on the SlideFlash Discord server. Stuff like that. So there, we, so there it is. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I post a thread for questions about RPGs. I answer all of them every Friday morning. And then some of them I take and I talk about on this show. NPC and D says one of my players often argues with the fact that they are the heroes but they're smart heroes what he means is leaving behind tortured prisoners when they are of no use instead of rescuing them that 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 is way off from my understanding of a heroic a good heroic group of heroes is my opinion as a dm even more important here or is it good role play for him to want to save the world in his own way leaving behind tortured prisoners does not sound like a hero and I think that a way to handle this, we were, I was talking about alignment on the, D, on the Discord server and, and you know, do people use alignment? And what I realized is like, I don't pay any attention to alignment, but I do have some expectations of the kinds of characters that players are going to bring to the game. <clears throat> so that doesn't sound very heroic to me. And I, I don't pay attention to alignment, but I do have baseline expectations about what I expect for the characters that the players bring to the table. And that kind of thing, like leaving behind people who are going to be tortured is probably one of those things where is it, is it worth having the conversation with the group to say, is the, are these the kinds of characters that we want to have in our game? Is this the kind of characters with a story that we want to follow? So I usually don't pay any attention to alignment, but I have a lower floor. And I have certain things that like below that floor, I don't want to, I don't want to manage as a DM. Like I don't want to, you know, I'm enjoying the story about where things are going as much as the players are enjoying the story. And there are certain areas I don't want the story to go. And I cover a lot of these in like a session zero guide where I say like, here are the specific things. And there's, there's a couple things you can do. You have your lines and veils. You have things that you just do not want to cover in your game or things that you want to veil off to the side. And you might say things like, we don't want to have any player or character initiated torture, character initiated combat or, or non-consensual violence between two characters, any kind of you know, m- murdering non-combatants, 
could be one. Any kind of character, I think I already mentioned character-initiated torture. Obviously, any kind of non-consensual sexual assault or, 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 or even verbal assault, anything like that. So you just set your low floor. Any kind of, you know, you know racial, gender-based bigotry, anything like that. You can, you can set that as your lower floor. We don't want to have that in this game. And everybody agreed. Before they mail characters, before they say, oh, but that's what my character would do. Say, no, not here, right? Not, not in this game. And then you can also, and I, I promote this very heavily, of describing a central motivation for the characters that engage them with the campaign. And I'm a bit heavy-handed with it, but I tell you, it makes things so smooth. And the idea is you say something like, you and your band of adventurers are trying to save the crossroads from the twisting of energy down in scarlet Citadel, so that they have a goal and their goal is to like save the people of the crossroads like that's their goal protect the people of the crossroads if you're doing descent into avernus it's like save el Terrell from the from the the, the cults that are, want to bring about evil and then of course when el Terrell disappears is save el Terrell. but you put the central motivation into the character so all of them are tied that way and you do it before they've built their characters so there's not like i don't know why i'd bother to help the people of this of this area it's wired in we all agreed at the beginning that you want to have this and you can reinforce that during the game. And that helps steer away from the idea of like, why would you leave tortured prisoners behind when your character specifically is going off with these other adventures in order to save people like that? So you want to wire that sort of thing into the character so that the kind of story that's going to evolve, and there's still plenty of room for this story to evolve in many different directions, but you want to have a motivation that brings the character into the story of the campaign. So that's, that's really what I do to handle that. I don't worry about alignment. But I do have a lower floor of the things that I, I, I just want to officiate as a, as a DM. And then I have like a, a central motivation that I try to put into the characters before they're built to show them how they're going to have fun in this campaign. And a lot of times that's the motivation about why they do it. And I think that I think that that can really I think that that can really work when you're already in it and you see something like this. That's a good time to say, well, let's pause for a minute. I'm really not. I, I would really prefer that the kind of characters that we're dealing with are the kinds that would not just leave a bunch of tortured prisoners behind. I, you know, and, and you could have the conversation with the player themselves. You know, it's really, I don't like it as a character idea. I don't, I don't like it as like where it would take the story. Is there a way that you can work on the character to give them a good reason that they would not want to leave torture prisoners behind, have that conversation with them and see, and see where it goes. So that would be my suggestion. Oliver W says some, some members of my D and D group have been playing for about two and a half years this summer. I'm trying to get them to go online, but the DM thinks it'll be too much work. What is your experience with this? Is it an easy transition? And is there a VTT that would be most user-friendly? So yeah, I, I sympathize. When COVID happened, I didn't even consider it a choice on whether I was going to keep playing D&D. And we switched from full in-person to full online. There weren't tools that I loved. I just used Discord. So I definitely think, I think kind of looking, talking to the DM and finding out what kind of tools they use at their table that they're worried about using online, and then figuring out what are the easiest, simplest ways to do that can help. I have an article where I talk about like my online RPG stack, the, the software stack that I use to run games that I really like. And it's very lightweight, very lazy-based approach. I love Discord. I love Notion. I love Owlbear Rodeo as my VTT. I use D&D Beyond a lot if I'm using D&D stuff. Or, or I, I use I use Notion for a lot of my stuff. So there's lots of different systems that can be pretty easy to use. But you can also show by example. 
maybe you run a one shot show show say like i'd like to you know ask if you, the players you know if they're moving suggest you pick up the ball instead of the, and then or maybe work say like what if i help you with it what if you just have to do the dm stuff and i help manage the infrastructure there are probably ways that you can work with the dm to either show them the stuff or you can pick it up yourself and become a dm it's really great. I love being a DM. So I think those are a few ways, but you can find a link down in the show notes below to like the software stack that I recommend that I, you know, over three years of playing online learned and now use regularly. I'm using it. I'm using it this very day. So that can definitely work. Kevin S says, question about cults and secret societies. Yay. And I figure if anyone is the answer, you do. Uh-oh. Party wants to join a cult or the cult wants the party to do a job for them. How do they trust each other? A real cult would be pretty careful about spilling its secrets. Do you have any ideas for tests the cult would perform to vet the party? I just kind of did a fast forward. Party asked to join. Group said, come back in a few days and after we run a background check. But I feel like I missed an opportunity. Wondering if there are any ideas that have been, been fun. So one thing to consider about cults is they could be they could have a bunch of inner rings that a lot of cults want to bring i mean i don't know anything about cults really and not real life cults and all i know about cults and dnd games is they're fun they're fun villains but from i think this isn't wrong that you can have kind of different circles and that cults want to bring in members they just might not want them in their inner ring so the orum is a really kind of fun cult in uh, Eberron. And the, the key about the Orem is they have a whole bunch of different rings and they literally have physical rings that show which level of the Orem they're in. And the first level might be you just, they're just quests. You, they, they, you, they send you off on quests. Hey, go do these things. Uh, the, the, the proof that kind of like, what are the tests? The tests could be just like any other D&D quest. Go to this old haunted ruin and recover this artifact we want. Go assassinate this guy we don't like. Go, you know, go rescue these cultists that got captured by the, by the, local, by the local sheriff and we want to rescue them. They could get a bunch of different quests that show them and maybe they start climbing the ranks and climbing the rings as they show themselves to be useful members of the cult. That sort of brings them in. But one of the things about cults is, A, there could be an infinite number of cults and those cults could have an infinite number of rings until you... You are at the very center of it. You're best buds with whoever the crazy cult leader is, right? So there's lots of different ways to think about that. It, sure, a cult might very quickly bring you in and say, expendable. You don't actually know anything about our secret stuff, but we're still going to send you off on super dangerous missions. And if you succeed, maybe we'll start to give you more and more secret stuff that you have these compartmentalized groups of like, what do they know? And the Aurum from Eberron is a really good way to do it. So I think, I think that that could be, I think that that could be really fun. Dylan B says, my players just hit level 16 and are strapping in for the final grind to 20. I know you've talked before about a pretty minimal tier four support that Wizards provides, and I pledge Forge of Foes, hoping to create some credible threats on my own. But I'm wondering if you could offer any advice on running high-level monsters and encounters, managing challenges in characters that are basically superheroes, and any independent resources that might be worth my time. 2C Gaming has built lots of good products to talk about running high-level stuff. They have a bunch of, like the Total Party Kill Bestiary. Look at 2C Gaming. I'll link to them down below. They have a lot of different products for big-ass monsters. Some things to keep in mind. You can always put in more monsters you can always increase the amount of damage that they do the, the ring the, the the dials of monster difficulty work very well at high levels too more damage more monsters more hit points you know all of those all of those coming more numbers of attacks you want to throw the threat up 
do a lot more damage. Double the amount of damage that they do. When you double the amount of damage monsters do, then they get really scary at high CRs. But also be thinking about what the main goals are for them in this tier four. Like what are the, the multiverse size goals that they're trying to accomplish here? And what are the big threats that they're that they're trying to accomplish? It's not the same as lower tiers. I talk about this quite a bit, that you want to make sure that the, the types of challenges that they're facing are the types of challenges that superheroes would face. Planetary level challenges, right? Issues that they really have to do. You know, Captain Marvel is very, very powerful, but she has to figure out, she, she still has challenges in other galaxy issues that she's dealing with, right? She she has these other big problems, even though even though she's super powerful. She's like, I, I was away. I couldn't blow up Thanos' ship right away because I was busy doing some other stuff, right? So think about what those big threats are that they're, that they're going to accomplish. But a big one, the e- easy ones are take the normal monsters, but have them do a lot more attacks and a lot more damage. That's always a good one. High, you know, dam- damage is damage. Damage always matters. And it's pretty rare when you can like, run you know when 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 increasing the damage that monsters do isn't enough usually it's enough especially if you like they auto crit they just they just do double damage all the time and when they crit it four times damage like you can you can really jack up the damage on those guys and it really works same with hit points if you have a boss monster again forge of foes is going to have you covered on a lot of this stuff we talk a lot about about how to protect boss monsters and how to build really strong legendary monsters and everything like that but it's hard to go wrong with the four dials for that kind of thing. Increase the number of monsters, increase their hit points, increase their damage, increase their number of attacks, and you can make really big threats at, at pretty high levels. So I hope that helps, Dylan. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff from me like this, consider subscribing to the free Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. You get a free adventure generator PDF and you get a weekly RPG-related article sent directly to your inbox. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive stuff like the Regnum Rattus Rats in the Cellar adventure they also get the dedicated discord channel the monthly q a and access to a whole pile of different material that's really a good value to be a be a member of the patreon to be a member of the sci patreon and you can pick up any of my books including return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and the lazy dms companion all of those are linked down in the show notes below thank you very much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg